epistle reading today. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. The wilderness is not a place one wants to be for very long. You know, perhaps we as suburbanites might uh, have a bit of an attraction to the wilderness. Might it seem kind of wonderful to be out without phone or work or commitments for a while? Well, maybe yes and, and, and no. The, the trappings of modern life are all too pervasive, and maybe a season away sounds kind of refreshing. That's not quite the kind of wilderness that we're talking about here, not the kind of wilderness that our collect refers to or our gospel reading calls our attention to. There's only a few places in the world that I've been that I can imagine that are really genuinely wilderness-like. I can recall the Anza Borrego Desert out in the eastern part of Southern California. It's a stark expanse of rock and sand and cacti and very little life or the badlands of western North Dakota, although possessing a certain kind of beauty, have their name for a reason. This is a land that is bad for human habitation. True wilderness is not a sustainable location for human flourishing, and if we humans come across some wilderness, we're wise either to avoid it or try to make it a bit less wild. Now, readings this morning give us an almost subterranean foundation to our Lenten journey. I think the concept drawn from this cluster of texts goes down to the very depths of the human situation and, and thus invite us to see this season as not just some passing fad, but as a time that actually mirrors the very core of both our existence and God's response in Christ to our situation. For although our wandering in the wilderness of Lent is this year but 40 days, the entirety of our lives is in fact a wilderness wandering, awaiting the final return home that is our hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul, in our reading from our epistle this morning, offers something of a a theological commentary on our Old Testament and gospel lessons. Here, Paul juxtaposes the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam, the husband of Eve. The second Adam, the husband of the church. Adam and Eve's situation is well known, placed in a garden with all that they could need. In their immaturity, they reverted toward that nothingness from which they were made by succumbing to the temptation of the serpent. And this serpent, like the devil who tempts Christ, knew God's word, knew it well, knew it well enough to question it, knew it well enough to twist it. In the first verse of Genesis 3, the serpent utters its, did God actually say? This to me is like a a Trojan horse of epic proportions. Hiding within this simple question is, I think, a a direct assault on the entire cosmic foundation that governed Eden. Genesis 1 and 2 in the narrative state, in, in no uncertain terms, that God is the cause of the cosmos. God and God alone has brought about the existence of all things. God is the creator, and everything else is the creation. 
And this has brought about a, a, a necessary or an ultimate dependence of the creation on the creator. The only, only firm and sure foundation for the entire cosmos in the Genesis 1-2 to narrative is God. And so for the serpent to register its, did God actually say, is, I think, to effectively raise the question, is God God? Is God the creator? Perhaps it isn't the case that the creation is the creation. Maybe the creation is the creator. So goes the serpent's logic. But to suggest that the creation is the creator is not only nonsensical and obviously incoherent, but it leads to the very disintegration of the fabric of reality that Genesis is painting. What do I mean that? Well, think about the very opening of Genesis 1, the very first words of creation. And God said, let there be light. The whole cosmos was brought about by the saying of God. And now here the serpent denies this very fact with its, did God actually say? And we know how the story goes. Rather than accept the word that God had said in creation, and to them specifically, Adam and Eve welcomed this Trojan horse of the serpent's question. They disobeyed what God had said, and so turned against God and nature. And the result? God drives humanity out of the garden, and humans enter into an existential wilderness wandering. As Paul comments in verse 12 of Romans 5 in our reading today, sin came into the world through one man, that is the first Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all humans. This wilderness that Adam and Eve and all humanity entered into is the death that now reigns in the world. And this is our present state. This is the state of humanity. However you work it out biologically or ontologically, all humans are in Adam. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in Adam all die. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians, and also here in Romans, that he brings this up being in Adam not just because he wants to bring up a story of condemnation. Rather, there's a second half of this verse. For in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. So there's a switch that is flipped from Adam to Christ. A cosmic pivot has been made through the obedience of Christ. Here is in, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, as in Romans, Paul holds up this comparison of the first Adam with the second Adam. Again, Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all humans, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all humans. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The first Adam failed in the garden and was sent into the wilderness. In our gospel reading, the second Adam is led into the wilderness and there faces the same tests as the first Adam. We catch these parallels. Matthew 4.1 says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Matthew describes Jesus here receiving the direction of the Holy Spirit. Rather than asserting himself against the divine order, he follows the Spirit to face what's being prepared for him. And the parallels continue. Adam is juxtaposed with Jesus, and the serpent is here juxtaposed with the tempter, also called the devil in this passage. 
And recall the serpent's opening line to Eve. Did God actually say? And note here in Matthew, the devil's opening phrase in, in verse 3. If you are the son of God, the devil says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. It's actually repeated in the second temptation. If you are the son of God. And I think this question is functionally the same question as the serpent asks Eve. We can re-ask it as, did God actually say you were his son? I think this question is all the more striking in Matthew's gospel because God literally just said that Jesus was his son. Not four verses prior, at the end of the previous chapter in Matthew 3, this is the scene of Christ's baptism. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And just 40 days later in Jesus' life, but just four verses later in our own reading of the narrative, the devil asks his standard question. Did God actually say that? But in distinction from the first Adam, rather than allowing this Trojan horse into his mind, Christ has a, a firm line of defense. He responds to the questioning of God's saying with more things God has said. With Jesus, his response to the tempter is a, a clear word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. Three, three times in response to the three temptations. This reliance on the word of God, this trust in the saying of God, was what the first Adam failed in. You can even think about Eve in that, in that moment of deliberation in Genesis 3. If she knew God's word, she knew what God had said, yet the serpent was calling that into question. And then verse 6 of Genesis 3 Eve saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. That is, Eve took it upon herself to evaluate the accuracy of what God had said. Did God actually say, well, I'm not sure, let me think about it. Well, this fruit looks good for food, it's a delight to my eyes, so no, perhaps God didn't actually say. Adam and Eve didn't understand that their estimation of the situation was immature. They hadn't yet learned well how the world worked. They thought if it looked good, it is good, regardless of what God had said about it. However, the second Adam, Christ, shows us what a mature response is to the questioning of God's word. Christ had learned obedience, as Hebrews 5 says. He learned by conforming to, responding appropriately to, and trusting in God's word. This was a lesson the first Adam had not yet learned. Adam had not learned to accept God's word and so disobeyed. Jesus, the second Adam, accepted God's word to the point of internalizing it such that his obedience was immediate. We might remember that Christ's obedience in the wilderness did not stop there. In fact, it led him from the wilderness to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus' prayer shows us, once again, what trust in God's word really is. It's, it's trust to the point of agony, trust to the point of death. And yet, as we know, that death is not itself even the end of the story. For it's in God's resurrection of Christ from the dead that we get a glimpse, then, of our own return from the wilderness. Death is not the end of the human wilderness story. As Paul says again in our reading, for... If, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is, reign through eternal life. The resurrection of Christ shows us that we need not be banished to the wilderness for an eternal death, but that we're invited to life, new life, to new life in a new heaven and a new earth, a, a new Jerusalem, not in the wilderness, but in a city of God's own making. And so, friends, we live not just this season, but our, our whole lives in the wilderness. We in Adam are dead in our sins and banished from the garden. Yet we in Christ have the righteousness to face our tempter and, as our colleague says, live in obedience to the Spirit. How many times do we in our own situations hear the tempter say something to the effect of, did God actually say? Perhaps it's all manner of sins. Did God actually say don't lie? Did God actually say don't lust? Did God actually say don't cheat? Now, I don't want to downplay the need we have to resist these twistings of what God has said as it pertains to specific sins we might have. But we might also recall that the devil's test of Jesus was if you are the son of God, did God actually say you were his son? This cuts straight to Jesus' identity, straight to the heart of Jesus' identity. And, and I wonder if in this season, we even as a parish have been afflicted by some similar tests that strike to the heart of our identity and our individual roles in this community. Have we heard the voice of the tester at times? Did God actually say you should be a part of this community? Did God actually say you should stick it out in such a broken place? Did God actually say you should check out that All Souls Parish in this season of turmoil? Did God actually say this Christianity thing was even worth looking into? These utterances, spoken or even just implied by the devil, call into question the very words God has spoken into our lives. And they're meant to be a means to turn us away from God's sayings and toward our own estimation, our own ideas, our own evaluation. And so what do we do about it? Well, we can follow the lead of the second Adam, follow the lead of Christ, by being immersed in and saturated with God's word in scripture and in prayer. In the wilderness temptation, Jesus met every did God actually say with an it is written. And in the garden temptation, Jesus threw himself into prayer. Both are means for the Spirit to assure us that we're not destined to wander the wilderness of death forever, but that God will indeed bring us in Christ to the resurrection life that is our final home. Amen.